thinking it. Where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. This is the Overthinking It book club, and we are playing Final Fantasy VI. This is the third episode of this book club, and we are on week two of our playthrough. So uh, we are discussing the three scenarios. This would be Terra, Locke, and Sabin's uh, respective journeys. Uh, with me, I have uh, three, to, for three scenarios, I have three panelists. Uh, so we have uh, Justin Bortnick. Hey, Justin. Hey, Ben. Uh, welcome back. And uh, next to him, we have John Parrish. What up, what up, what up? And last, we have Ryan Sheely. Uh, so I'm sorry, Jordan Stokes. Uh, my notes are out of date. Hey, Jordan. <laughs> and I am slowly floating downstream as the rest of you disappear into the distance. Right. <laughs> so so we're talking about these three scenarios, and I guess we'll just we'll start and talk about the fact that there are these three scenarios. What, what do we make of this this narrative split in the game? Well, one thing that I can say is that I came to Final Fantasy VI having only ever played Final Fantasy I before, and the notion that there would be a split in the party and then three scenarios where I could choose to pick one to play first, even though I recognize that there's not actually a choice there, right? I mean, you can you do A, B, C, or C, B, A, and uh, it's the same experience, just sliced three different ways. But it was so jaw-dropping to me. Um, I remember being, like, really, really, really excited when that happened, Um to that to that point, I think it's interesting that it happens so relatively early in the game, right? Um, and it, unless I'm missing my my thought process, I don't think that anything like this happens later on, right? Like this is your only time that you get to do it. You might be sort of teased with the notion that you'll get to do it all the time. There's going to be all kinds of little narrative jumping around um, and different focalizing characters taking over the story at different moments. But in fact, that turns out to to be less true. Um, still you sort of give the game credit for it and, and that excitement doesn't really fade until pretty close to the end when you're just kind of like grinding through and being like, ugh, get me to the boss already. Yeah, when I when I saw that, I was like, aha, here we have the uh, one of the benefits of a computer or video game RPG because uh, one of the sort of terrors that if you're playing like a Dungeons & Dragons type uh, tabletop role-playing game one of the terrors that a dungeon master has nightmares about is splitting the party and having to manage separate groups of real people trying to do things at the same time. So this sort of allows for a sort of storytelling that while you could do it in a traditional role-playing game, uh, quickly becomes a giant headache, and the more times you split becomes more and more unwieldy. Once again, video games prove their superiority to having actual friends. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's also it's a, oh, it's a neat bit of it's a neat bit of narrative creation in that, and and one of the things they they did well, which I didn't think they had to do, and I'm not sure other games do this as well, is that not only do the storylines take you in three different directions, but they they assume chronological continuity. So you will hear about things happening in one storyline as they happen. And then later, when you go and play the storyline in which they happen, you'll actually be a part of them. Uh, and we can get into more detail on, on what that is when we talk about the individual story types. But uh, that's it's a neat little detail, a neat little way of adding verisimilitude to the world. You know, I didn't even think about that when I was playing, because I, I think that I, um, I subconsciously, subconsciously, accidentally rather, 
picked the stories in the chronological order that the game sort of assumes them to happen. But to um, if I had gone the other way, man, there must be a real heartbreaker to be doing lock scenario last. And there's a, a line where Celis is like, oh, man, like, if we're not careful, the Empire might take Doma. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Or, uh, or I think, I think she, no, she objects to, uh, what Kefka has, has planned for Doma or something like that. And, uh, yeah, you're, when, when that happens, of course, you're hearing about that too late for it to, to really be affected, but it, it gives you the sense of a, a richer and fuller world. Sure, sure. And it also maybe like slightly changes what you think of Celis. I mean, none of us are playing this for the first time here, right? On the panel. Right. Um, so we all know that she's a, a good, a good person. Um, but I did that one first and I remember sort of trying to insert myself as Locke a little bit there and thinking like, well, would I really trust her? You know, I mean, yeah, she's she's tied up and um and being like punched in the gut, which is you know shorthand for for being a good person in video game world, I suppose, especially if you're female. <laughs> um, but we because I hadn't seen the the atrocity in the game world, her objecting to it didn't give her quite the same kind of moral bona fides that it would if I had played those scenarios in reverse. And then when, like, sort of post-Doma, you come to her and it's like, oh, wait, here's the the good Empire soldier who was not on board with that horrible thing that I just saw go down. Because it's not like she gives a, a detailed prospectus of what they have planned that she's objecting to. She just says that, like, you know, that that's what they have planned is bad or monstrous or something like that. Right. And it's not a conversation you can continue with her because conversations don't happen in RPGs unless they're particularly initiated by, you know, by the plot. Right. It's a really weird model of conversation where there are just sort of speeches out in the world that you can kind of stumble across and, uh, <laughs> and examine, but not, not actually elicit more it's like coming across a, a like a really interesting conversation on the forum of a website that hasn't been updated since like the mid nineties. Yeah. <laughs> like, wow, the, these guys on Usenet really had it figured out. I wonder where, oh. <laughs> Sentences you, you never, never before uttered. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think the, the splitting of the party also the, sort of introduces uh, a character in the form of the player, because before now you haven't been taken out of the action at all, if I'm correct. I don't think you have. And then suddenly, I guess the Moogle comes out and says, hey, you, player, uh, which order do you want to do these things in? And uh, suddenly, I guess you're, you're involved on a way that you were not before, which is interesting. That does happen briefly very early, just to, does well, actually, when, okay. when you, you and the other Moogles have to defend the unconscious Terra against a bunch of, uh, a bunch of Narsh partisans, uh, it's like you and Locke and like 13 different Moogles, all of whom right, have right, ridiculous Right, right, I remember. Names. Yeah. yeah. But it, that, that's a fairly minor aside. Uh, I think, I think this is sort, I think this reintroduction sort of lets us know that the Moogle has presence outside of that one encounter that oh okay this guy's significant in the world somehow you're gonna be meeting him again. But I yeah, would it's also always say, the Moogle. What's that? No, I just said it's always the Moogle that does these things. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Like well, like the butler. It makes um, it makes the Moogle kind of a extra dimensional character in that the Moogle is kind of like coming through the fourth wall into the game 
and kind of injecting these meta concerns into the game and then leave and then departing instantly. But still, it, it, the Moogle's not quite coming from the world, but rather coming kind of from our world or at least some kind of in between world. So yeah, yeah. Is, the Moogle, the Moogle is like Q on Star Trek or Rod Serling in the Twilight Zone, and that it has access to extra diegetic space, right? Right. Um, right. But at the same <laughs> time, I was say like, is 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 the Moogle like the Deadpool of the game? Can he actually see the text boxes? <laughs> <laughs> well, he can hear the background music. Right. Like he knows he's in a video game, but nobody else will believe him. <laughs> right. 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 Or maybe they would if he could say anything other than Kupo, Right. I don't know, maybe, I forget, does he talk later on? We're getting ahead of ourselves. Um, I did want to say, um, returning to that point of the character of the player being introduced with the splitting of the scenarios, I think even with that earlier scene, you can kind of say that um, that what you were talking about does happen when the scenarios split. Because I played the Moogle thing as if the game was breaking the fourth wall to give directions to Locke who was the only human involved at the moment there and the only sort of avenue for me to insert myself into the game. Like, I was playing as Terra for a while, and then I play as Locke. Uh, there's a really interesting moment when he first joins up with her and they become part of the same party, right, where every time I've played the game, and I've done it maybe three times now, um, part of me expects once she rejoins the party for her to be the default map character, but it doesn't work that way. Locke stays the uh, the guy that you move around unless you manually go in and have Tara, you know, elbow to the front, sisters doing it for themselves style. Um, so, so at that point, you know, you can you can think think of it as a message to you or as a message to Locke. I feel like telling Locke how to fight this fight that he is going to be fighting. But when you're splitting the scenarios. Because you have those three different people to be, I feel like it is much more reaching through the screen to the player and telling you, like, to which one of these is going to be your avatar, which one are you going to invest yourself in first, with the understanding that you don't actually get to pick one, the way that, like, you you select a character um, in any other kind of game where you have multiple characters and be like, all right, my guy is going to be Hagar for this round of Final Fight. Um here, you're going to be all of them. So get used to flitting back and forth between personas, because that's what we expect of you. Yeah. I think your your usage of, of Avatar, which is, I guess, a, a thing that exists, that's a commonly used term, is really interesting because you are making this, uh, you are making this sort of investment of yourself into a character more so than if you don't have an option. It is a deliberate choice. And I think it, your, your usage of the term investment is really apt given the sort of Hindu roots of the word avatar is that you you are you are the deity in this game you are the the one pulling the strings in the end right so you are becoming the character and I will say that my use of avatar there was was not so much uh, contingent upon you know internet avatars but to my shame directly from the James Cameron movie where they're they're explicitly drawing on those Hindu roots right oh okay well. One, one you just that, lost a bunch of respect for me. <laughs> no, I, I haven't seen that movie, so I, I don't like. I, I can't continue the conversation without uh, seeing it as a point of reference first, so I know what you're talking about. And I just gained a bunch of respect for you. Okay. <laughs> yeah. One thing that I think is you know interesting to to keep I've been kind of keeping my eye on throughout this book club is how we're comparing you know what is being done inside the game to other forms of fiction, and I think it's interesting to think about. 
you know, this idea of kind of splitting the narrative is extremely common in TV shows, movies. You know, the main party splits up and one person goes to the, you know, you're going to go to the attic and you're going to check out the basement and then we'll meet up in the middle. And then, of course, it goes disastrously wrong. Uh, but still, you have this pretty common narrative trope of splitting up the narrative. But it does it in a way using editing where you can kind of follow both at the same time, whereas this does it more in sequence. And I'm trying to imagine how you would you would do that. The only thing I'm coming up with is like a Netflix series where there's episode one and then there's episode 2A, 2B, and 2C. And you can pick which order you want to watch those three in because they'll, it'll make sense no matter what order you watch them in, which would be pretty cool. But I can't really think of anybody actually doing something like that. I think there there have been like a couple of isolated examples of things like that. Um, there's a a series of novels that I haven't read and I don't remember the author, but they're called the Alexandria Quartet, and the idea is that like the, none of them are sequels to each other. They are all linked and contemporaneous, and uh, although they were obviously written one after the other in real time, they're not meant to be um, conceptually prior to uh, and like each other. Um, and I'm trying to think, I don't know, there's like the movie Time Code, right? Which is uh, another thing where you have four narratives going on simultaneously in four corners of the screen. But these are all weird examples. Right. The the only thing I could think of would be if the, some of the later seasons of Lost pick up the story of what happened to the tail section of the plane. And there's a couple episodes that are just devoted to those people and not the main characters that have been so far in the, the rest of the show. So if you really wanted to, I think you could probably watch those episodes first and then watch the rest of the show and have those <laughs> original have the tail section characters be the main characters and everyone else be the 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 front section people, but I don't really think that would work that well. Yeah, you get I mean in television you get that a lot when they're trying to do sort of a backdoor pilot when they want to spin off a character into their own TV show and then that character gets an episode that's unrelated to the main story and could sort of be slotted in because they're off somewhere else doing something that's not related to whatever the main uh, narrative thread was. Right. But it's certainly much more interesting in the video game context where it's kind of baked into the game to have this choice of how you want to, how you want to experience the story. So another way to, um, to reach out of, you know, reach out to other things that go on in fiction. There's a, a pair of terms from literary theory, uh, Russian formalism, if you want to get nasty, sujet and fabula, uh, which are, they, they bring them up in discuss, discussing a fairy tale, where the fabula is the, the raw material of the story. So in Little Red Riding Hood, you know that she will encounter the wolf on the way to the house, and the wolf will get there first and eat the grandmother, and she will come in, uh, and she will talk to the wolf, and then he will chase her and perhaps eat her, and perhaps a woodcover saves them all, right? The, the sujet is the, the way that it's actually told in whatever order it happens to be told. So usually these things are in sort of a one-to-one relationship, but if you have something like Memento, the fabula runs straight forward in time, whereas the sujet is all over the place, right? Um, and I was just thinking that if you were to try to do this with video games, like the, the fabula is sort of what the, what they actually write. 
you know, the, the script as it takes place in order and the boss encounters and things like that. But the, the sujet is always going to be all over the place because there's nothing stopping you from walking up to the last boss and then being like, oh man, I need some more tonics and walking all the way back to the first town and then walking to the last boss again, right? Like you, you, by the nature of being a video game, um, there is no definitive way that the matter of the story is laid out in any particular order, really. Although you can kind of um, usually make it serial so that you have to do this before you do this. Um, the duration between point A and point B of time is always totally flexible. So in a way, there, I feel like the, the splitting the party here is just capitalizing on that, um, what might seem at first like a weakness inherent in the medium. This this actually this this is a good opportunity. There's a term that we've thrown around a couple times, and it, it's up on the forums now. Shana used it, uh, but I don't think we've had a good definition. So, so Justin, I might throw this to you. What is ludo narrative? Can you can you give us a good definition and kind of how it works into all this? Okay, so ludo narrative, um, which is a compound word from uh, ludology, uh, from the Greek, uh, and narrative or i guess is the second word is sort of the where in a game usually in a video game you have the ludic elements of the game which is gameplay and the narrative elements which is the story and anywhere that those two intersect you get ludo narrative so it's often used in the term, in the, I guess the broader term, ludonarrative dissonance to point out where a game presents the player with a situation that sort of pulls the player out of the game. It makes them realize, oh, this is a video game, the artifice is revealed, the sort of aesthetic distance is violated, and this is, some people consider uh, this to be a bad thing. Um, a really good example of this would be if you are try- if you're presented with a door in a game and it is it has a glass glass uh, window in it and the window is broken and you try to open the door and the game tells you ah sorry this door's locked you need to go find the red key and you think well why don't I just reach through the door like reach through the broken window and open <laughs> the door but the game doesn't allow you to do that it it makes you go all the way back to wherever the red key is and get it before you can pass through this obstacle that you should, if this were real life, uh, be able to trivially overcome. The other classic example, right, is when you walk into two inches of water and instantly drown. And I always say, like, hey, Mario, what if you just didn't drown, but it never seems to be on the menu? <laughs> yeah. Or even worse, when Mario just falls straight through the water off the screen because the water is just a, a picture in the background. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, he doesn't even float down. He just falls gravity. <laughs> the, the one I always think of is towards the end of a game when you've become, like, basically a god in terms of the, you know, in a lot of games where you have these, like, godlike abilities and no one can challenge you, but yet there will still be, like, non-player characters that are meant to kind of enforce the limits of the game that you just can't do anything about. You know, I'm thinking of, like, in uh, um, Ocarina of Time, when you're trying to sneak around the Gerudo Fortress. It doesn't matter what kind of weapons you have or what kind of awesome armor and the big Goron sword and all this stuff. 
you still get captured every time they run up to you and uh, and throw you in the jail because that's that's this part of the game is that you get captured. You can't fight them. You can't try to evade it. You can't use all your powers. No, you're just done. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And some sometimes the dissonance is more on the narrative side than the the mechanic side. Like uh something that a game that's often pointed to a lot as as being dissonant is the uh, the uncharted games which are sort of like Indiana Jones the game uh where you're playing as this this guy Nathan Drake who is supposed to be a likable character. He's sort of the lovable scamp. Uh and whenever the camera pulls back and you get a cutscene He's shown being sort of like a cool guy, jokey, everybody likes him. But while you're controlling him, he is killing literally hundreds and hundreds of people, hundreds and hundreds of mercenaries that have nothing better to do than kill him. So there's there's this sort of break between the guy that we're told we're supposed to like and the guy who has ended the lives and, I guess, maybe orphaned children or widowed you know, wives hundreds and hundreds of times over of course this is the dissonance that you see in pop culture as a whole which is action heroes that mow down you know hundreds and hundreds of mooks but because they tell a joke at the end of it it's like (laughs) what a great guy sure i mean the the difference is that you're the one doing it right as opposed to yeah you're supposed to identify with nathan and drake in a way that you you may be supposed to identify with those action heroes but it's not at least, I, I don't think that you identify with them on the same level as when you're supposed to be doing it yourself. There's a bit more of a personification there. There's a, not, not personification, um, sort of incarnation of you into the character, that avatar thing again. It's also, like, if you watch uh, James Bond carry his way through uh, Blofeld's fortress, it's always sort of constructed such that um, he never is killing targets of opportunity He's never being grimly methodical about it. He's always moving as fast as he can and then sort of killing in instantaneous self-defense. Like he bursts through the door, the bad guy tries to draw on him, he shoots them and casually moves on. Whereas like the business of playing, I haven't played this particular game, but you know, I've, I've played a bunch of, uh, of games where I kill lots of people and usually like it becomes work for you right and, and you're not <laughs> thinking about it and you don't care about it and you don't you certainly don't ever think, well, I have to do this or England will fall, right? You're just like, all right, got you. Oh, you're standing next to the barrel. That was not smart. Kaboom. And you do a little victory dance, right? So then the fact that uh, that you're then sort of cracking wise in the next scene really seems to make the character look like more of a sociopath than if you were not cracking wise. Yeah, especially when you're when you killing them. Oh, I, like I need, I, like daddy needs a new gun or something just because I'm tired of the one I got or I need new bullets or uh, I'm, I'm running on health. Let's just kill dudes until they drop a medical kit. Or it's the truly trivial is like, well, I haven't gotten the achievement for killing 10 guys <laughs> with a combat knife. So it looks like I'm going to have to trigger this alarm and wait for them all to stream out. Yeah. Jeez. So speaking of, Speaking of narrative dissonance, uh, to sort of g- gently nudge it back to the, the subject at hand, or ludonarrative dissonance, we get a little bit of that in Locke's scenario, where he's alone sneaking through South Figaro, which is now occupied by the Empire, and he has a certain number of tasks that he needs to complete in a certain order, and there are some enemies that he might encounter that, no matter what level of power he's been built up to, like if... If he runs afoul of them, he'll get bonked on the head and tossed back to the start of the, the start of the town, which 
A, violates the previously established convention of if everyone in your party gets bonked on the head, that's the end of the scenario. And B, it, you know, Locke, even if he is outnumbered, is can be equipped to be somewhat capable of taking on one or two goons at a time, and yet, you know, has to has to tread very carefully around these guys. This is a case of something that I've noticed uh, RPGs, JRPGs, tend to do frequently, which is they give you a little and kind of broken version of another genre of game as a little island in the middle of their their larger project of being an RPG, right? They want you to to be doing, um, I guess, Metal Gear stuff here, right, is maybe the closest thing. Yeah. Um, and uh, therefore having you just grind it out RPG style is going to, to take that take that away from you. Um, but they, they don't have a really elegant way of doing it, right? Um, and it's it's sort of the same problem as the, the Zelda one that you brought up earlier, right? That the game is not prepared for you to be as as good at killing the mooks as really we all know you are. Yeah, the game just draws a line between your power in combat and your actual power in the story. The two are completely disassociated from one another. You, know, you you could be level 99 and it doesn't matter. You're still going to get tossed out. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you could go in and, and hack the game, right, and give yourself stats that you can't even attain, and you'd still be tossed out. Because it looks like it's going to be part of the game at that point, but actually it's part of the narrative, right? Like, it, it's only pretending at that point to be Ludo. Right. You're there's, there's more stuff in the lock scenario. We had a, a comment on the forums from, uh, hang on, um, from Arete, I guess. Uh, saying that, uh, there's a bit here where you're told that stealing is wrong, right? Or no, the, the lock can choose to steal or not to steal a key. And one of the choices that you can select is stealing is wrong. But if you do that, then you're just sort of dumped back into the scenario until you choose to steal the key again, and this time go ahead and steal it, right? Which is a pretty common video game trope. <laughs> Yeah, I think so, that's called uh, "but thou must" on TV tropes, because uh, yeah, it, it's it, it's 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 a false choice. You you're not actually allowed to choose the second one. It's like uh, one of one of them in in Pokemon when the guy says, "Hey, you want to join Team Rocket?" and uh, you you can't actually you can't actually join Team Rocket. But Aww. I do want to join Team Rocket. Meowth is cool. I wanna I wanna subvert them from within. I want to you know reform them by being part of the system. That's the easiest way to do it. Uh, so one, one thing that, so we're talking about false choice here, and one thing I was reminded of in looking through the, the, the game, game facts, game FAQs of this game is that there are a lot of choices that I, that I apparently missed when playing through these scenarios because they involve things that I either didn't know I could do or forgot to do. Uh, the one example being, sorry to jump, uh, tracks briefly, but when you're, when you're in the Imperial camp, uh, there is a fairly straight line path that, uh, Sabin and, uh, I think you're still just Sabin at that point. Uh, there's a fairly straight line path that Sabin can, uh, muddle, or Sabin and Shadow can muddle through that will get them to overhearing Kefka and overhearing Leo and then, uh, joining sides with, uh, Cyan at one point. But in between them, you're able to explore a lot of the other tents you see on, st- on the stage and, open some uh, treasure chest in that way and fight a couple of different monsters that you wouldn't otherwise be exposed to. You don't have to do any of this. So this is a 
This is an interesting example of the game making a choice available to you, but not really signposting it. So I, I guess the take is that you do have choice when it comes to exploring the different, I guess, nooks and crannies of the game and unlocking different levels of power. But when it comes to certain areas of character or plot, uh, you don't have as much choice, with exceptions that we're going to find out in the world of Ruin later on, obviously. This is uh, going back to the stuff on the forums again. Um, in that same comment, Arete says that uh, with with lock uh, and the key, you have a railroad of identity. Using the it's an RPG term, railroad plot, right? When the the yeah. DM has some idea that like uh, they'd like you to take the ring to Mordor, and your idea of like you know just trying to put the ring on and take Sauron, take Sauron on because you're just tough enough is, uh, not going to be allowed to even be attempted, right? Um, right. so, so Locke has to be this particular kind of guy. What I think is maybe a strength of Final Fantasy VI though is its very crudeness in this area because Although yes, you have certain choices that are, are demanded of you in terms of who the characters are. Uh, like Terra can't actually walk away from the returners, right? And Locke can't choose not to take that key. You're not given a lot of information as to why they do it. So I was really taken, uh, in this comment, uh, Arete says that the reason that Locke has to take the key, even though he thinks that stealing is wrong, apparently, um, because he's always saying, I'm not a thief, I'm a treasure hunter, right? He hates to steal, but he can't leave the woman behind to, to get hurt. So therefore he has to throw his scruples aside, and it makes no sense that the person he is would not take the key, right? Because he's a hero. Right. I, playing the same scenario, got to the stealing is wrong thing and thought it makes no sense that Locke would not take the key because actually he's a thief. And he only pretends like he has a, a big attitude about being a treasure hunter, but given the opportunity to steal the key, he's totally going to steal the key because that's the kind of person he really is. And I don't yeah. think that the game really gives us a lot of information, at this point at least, to support uh, her story or his story, I'm not sure, um, over mine. Uh, although later on that may that may change, you know, a little bit. <laughs> Well, what's what's uh, his in battle command called? Steel, right? And then later yeah. mug, which is awesome. Yeah, mug is a great <laughs> command. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's the that's the answer right there. Like, if he if he didn't want to be a thief, he wouldn't be stealing. Although it's kind of funny, right? Because like you could, out of moral scruple, never choose Locke's steel command. Uh, instead, focusing entirely on his murder command. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean the 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 steel command doesn't does in fact get less utility as the game progresses. Like, because Locke is never a unless I'm missing something, he's never a hugely powerful attack fighter. Uh, my, my best use for him has always, if he's been required, has always been to load him up with a lot of good magic and, and throw him into the scenario that way. So, like, he sort of, by, by default, you have to construct, if you want to, you can construct a narrative in your head. It's like, well, there's less for me to steal, or I've discovered this new world of magic and esper power that's more fulfilling for me than stealing. So I've sort of left that part of my life aside, or however you want to tell the story to yourself in your head. Locke goes back to grad school, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing I'd, I'd like to sort of shoehorn in, and I, I think in our chapter breakdown, this might technically have happened in the chapter in the prior week, but is the uh, the infinite river loop. 
which comes up here. And for the few of you listening to the podcast who don't know, so there's the sequence where I think it's when all four of you are still in the raft. Uh, Tara no, Locke Lock leaves ahead of time. He okay, so that's right. So Tara, hideout. And then- Tara, Tara, Sabin, Bannon, and Edgar. Right. On the raft. And, you know, you, you'll have certain points in the, in the flow of the river where you get to choose left or right or up or left. And these are real choices because they, they, they don't, I mean, they don't really derail the story, but they affect where you're going to go and you can encounter certain different things. If you, in, if you set your cursor to memory as opposed to reset or whatever it's called in the settings menu, uh, so it automatically defaults to a certain path and you, set up certain attack commands and use Bannon's recurring heal command, you can get your guys set on a path that will loop infinitely. And because Bannon has the power to heal the entire party without uh, uh, without costing any MP, you can essentially leave the game on overnight holding down the A button and get a practically infinite amount of experience points and gold. Like You can level everyone up to the maximum possible level, or at least Terra... Uh, Edgar, Sabin, and Bannon, for all that matters, level them up to the maximum possible level uh, before moving on to any other scenario. So, and I, I, th- I think I've alluded to this before, but I want to touch on it now, in that if we're treating the video game as a book, as a story that we're, you know, experiencing, what it, what's the, I guess, literary equivalent of power leveling through not really a hack, but through an unintentional game exploit uh, in order to become ridiculously overpowered, vastly beyond anything you're going to face for at least the next 20 hours of play uh, in order to advance forward. Like, what's the literary equivalent of that? Well, um, I don't know about literary, but uh, in, in film, it would probably be the training montage, right? Like, this, is, this could be condensed down to a 30-second clip of them all <laughs> killing monsters true over and over, and over again true that's I, I i guess i meant in the sense of like us as consumers of it like i as i as the player am choosing to infinitely loop for an hour or 10 hours or or how many hours in order to in order to experience the story quicker like if i were reading this if i were reading final fantasy 6 as a novel as opposed to playing it as a game what would the equi- what would this equivalent action by me the reader be the only thing I can think of is that it, I think there's it's at least a cousin of having the ending or the plot of the book or the narrative that you're doing spoiled for you in the sense that it doesn't completely change the experience, but it changes kind of your expectations of the, the stakes that if you know how the movie ends, if you know that Bruce Willis is dead the whole time, you can still get a lot of value out of the sixth sense, but you're watching the movie in a very different way because now you're just looking for clues uh, as kind of a cool little game instead of trying to figure out the mystery. It's not quite the same here because you're still, if theoretically you could do that the first time through, if the only thing you knew about the game was the infinite river loop, and the first time you through the game, you use the loop. For the rest of the game, you'll you'll be learning the narrative plot along at the same pace that you would otherwise. But there'll be no stakes in any of the battles because until a long, long time from now, every battle will be super easy for you to win. Yeah, this gets into a little about the the way that, in particular, in RPGs, the game part and the story part interact, which is that the game is primarily a a impediment, right? 
to getting <laughs> at the story. It's a, it's like the chaperone who makes sure that you, that you and, uh, you know, sweet lady narrative don't go too far on your first date. Um, <laughs> and that what you've done by, by doing this exploit is essentially removed the chaperone. So like, I was thinking that maybe an equivalent would be, say you have a, um, you know, you have a copy of War and Peace. And the thing that's stopping you from just skipping right through that wonderful narrative that War and Peace is, is that that's a lot of pages to turn. So what you do is you spend a weekend tearing them all out of the book, photocopying each of them so that they're not double-sided anymore, and then just laying them out in a giant row along, like, you know, Route 66 westbound. And then you can walk all the way down the length of it and read the whole thing without ever having to turn a page. Yeah. All right, I suppose the somewhat of the equivalent might be if you could somehow get a copy of the book on tape and then uh, were somehow perspicacious enough to hear and still comprehend the book if it were played at double speed. So you're getting the war on, war and peace experience, but in half the time, uh, and while able to multitask as well. So you can just cram your head full of story without having to do the laborious nature of you know, experiencing experiencing words in movable type at the the order and pace in which uh, Tolstoy thought you'd be reading them. Yeah, I was thinking something like a No Fear Shakespeare, where you're getting the whole Shakespeare play, but it's in a it's it's in language that is, I guess, less poetic and also more modern. So you'll get the whole thing, but it won't be the experience as it was designed. Yeah, all the heavy lifting is gone. And with Shakespeare, we would say immediately that's that's a bad thing, right? And I think that probably most people would say that doing actually doing the Infinite River Loop is a bad way to play Final Fantasy. I mean, I, I kind of love, especially because you have to, like, tape down your controller and then <laughs> turn the TV off and go away and wait yeah. for, like, two <laughs> days, you know? Like, at this point, that's so far away from uh, from, like the way that our technology works, that going through that hack feels more authentic than doing a lot of things straight in, uh, in real life. You know, it's like, it's like finding a way to game the system of, uh, of indulgences from the late medieval period or something <laughs> as a Catholic. Uh, <laughs> there's something kind of yeah. charming about it. it. It's, it's like, oh, I've deposited so much money with the church bank that the interest alone will pay for a continual stream of indulgences. Like, what? That's not what we, oh, you got us this time, Cesare Borgia, but next time. <laughs> I admit to being a person who has done stuff like, not this exact thing, but has done stuff where I've just taped the button down on a Game Boy when I was young and walked away because it was the most efficient way of achieving a goal. So it definitely does happen and people do do it on their, like, non-exploiting or playthroughs. And it's, and, and, and Stokes, there is, it's worth asking, is this meaningfully distinct from an actual cheat code? Like, is it different? To just use an, an exploit or, you know, the Konami code to play through a game the first time. I'd say yes, just because of the effort, just because of the time involved, if nothing else. Like, you still need to, like, you're not, uh, obviously, you, as Stokes said, you're sort of taping the button down and walking away from it. You're not, uh, you know, you're, you're letting it bake overnight, as it were. And even if I can't really articulate, there's a difference in my mind between Doing this, which I, I did for like 15 minutes or so on the emulator version I'm playing, just because I wanted a little bit of an edge to get through the next couple of uh, stages. And I don't have a problem, guys. I swear I'm fine. And uh, 
uh, using actual cheat codes, which, by virtue of the emulator that I have, are essentially baked into the emulator file. Like, you open a menu that says Game Genie Cheat Codes, and you can select from the available cheat codes without having to actually punch them in. It'll say, oh, you want uh, Terra to automatically be level 99 and have the Atma weapon equipped and know the Ultima spell? Yeah, sure, just just check this off, and that'll, that'll happen. That'll happen for you. And... For me, there there's a line in my head, I can't quite articulate, that prevents me from doing that, which has no problem with, you know, sending sending our heroes to loop pointlessly around a river for 30 hours. And you could also do this loop by hand. You don't need to tape your button down and then... <laughs> yeah, like you will have killed all those monsters and if the if the leveling process is the metaphor for gaining strength, then like you will have actually accomplished what the game says you've accomplished. Yeah. Uh, like I well, guess you maybe need a job or something too. <laughs> Which at that point is very much uh Camus' myth of Sisyphus thing. It's like it's it's the labor of pushing the raft down river that makes it meaningful, not whether the, the raft gets to the jive talking octopus. Uh, that from which we derive our philosophy. Well, this this is like the World of Warcraft Stark, uh, the Star- South South Park episode of World of Warcraft, where they spend months killing boars in the forest in order to level up. <laughs> right, and then the reward at the end is they can go back to killing boars in the forest. Right. Right. Yeah. Now we can play the game, right, guys? <laughs> <laughs> One must imagine them happy. Yeah, yeah, one must imagine Ultras happy. Yeah. What do you think of Ultras? This is another thing that, like, coming from Final Fantasy 1, Ultras blew my mind. The idea that you would get sassy commentary from the boss as you were fighting them. <laughs> it's sort of in line with the um, the whole magic that you guys talked about um, last time. Which, by the way, one of the times that I played this game, I tend to play these games just like fighting. Uh, I, I sort of bull my way through. So I actually had gotten to the point where, where Edgar was himself using magic when I first had Terra use magic in front of him. And you did have the whole scene, which I thought was pretty hilarious. <laughs> pretty good. Yay! Um, but that notion of like the, the story sort of intruding into the, the game space. Um, was very, very powerful. I think because of all of the little, like, formal cues that Final Fantasy uses to cordon off the combat from everything else, right? Like, it has its own music, it has its own screen, the characters sort of, like, bound into position, right? Um, and then to have the story managing to get through all of that, which, of course, I mean, it doesn't actually have to penetrate it, but in my head, somehow it does. Um, makes those moments of story uh, heightened in a certain way that the stuff that's just happening on the map screen does not really uh, have. Yeah, it's 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 interesting, especially in that the game. I mean, not only uh, not not only does that, but it also denies you certain levels of satisfaction. In that, for the first time, we fight we face Ultros, which is in this chapter. He. He flees the fight rather than engage you further. And it's not even with the standard boss level dissolve. It's like, whoops, I'm out of here. Sploosh. <laughs> like, like he, uh, like he has an option which is previously only reserved for the players, namely the ability to flee a combat that's going poorly for him, level up off screen, uh, learn different powers, and maybe get some new allies in the party, and then re-engage. Yeah, and this is a thing that happens in 
traditional tabletop role-playing games where if a character is important to the story, they will have levels in a character class and not sort of they're an NPC class like villager or shopkeeper. Like they will be a, a, a fighter or a paladin or something. Right. Or a bard, I guess, in Ultros' case. Yeah, yeah. It's clearly <laughs> a bard. Um, this, this also brings up... Um, Another issue that I, I had wanted to talk about that you guys touched on last time, which is the notion that uh, characters such as Ultros and and Vargas and Kefka have multiple representations, right? Um, Ultros, I don't think I don't know if we get to see it this time. Actually, it's been too long since I did that particular sequence. But he has a map tile character, right? Like a, a little. Little purple, yeah, you see him. Um, little purple squid thing, and then he has his fight uh, squid, which is much, much larger, right? Um, yeah. And you guys talked last time about how Vargas is as tall as you, and then much, much taller than you. And then Kefka, I think, is a particularly interesting one because you get to fight him during Sabin's scenario, where you fight him and he looks like you, right? Like he has a, a moving character doll that looks exactly like he does on the map, which is something that only the characters do. Um, which, again, is like, I think that's really revealing. It's a, it's a subtle cue, but it really tells you that Kefka is a, a bigger deal than anything else that you've come across, because he has the, the capabilities that you have, right? And then at the end of the, the decisive battle sequence, right, you fight him as a, as a normal monster, um, and I think that that's what tells you, like, oh, okay, those fights weren't really real fights, right? Because you hit him once and then he runs away in all of the ones where he is the little walking map character. But then once you fight him and he has his sort of static, gorgeously rendered pixel art, you know that this is a legitimate fight. Yeah, it, it is a it is a neat little bit of uh, narrative uh, narrative signposting, and uh, and yeah, I hadn't I hadn't thought of it in those lines, but uh, it does make sense that way. But then the question that I wanted to ask you is, in the cases where you have that doubling, and you even have it with the, all of the player characters to a degree, because you have their portraits on the menu screen, right? Which one of those do they look like? Like, what, what does Terra to you look like? Is her head the size of the entire rest of her body? Or is she a disembodied portrait of a, a sort of waifish, green-haired uh, woman? Or do you picture, like, an actual human being that these are just crude representations of? I have my answer, but I'm re- I'm really curious what all of you think. Uh, for me, for me, Tara is always visualized as, and I forget the the character artist's name, the who did the very famous, you know, very intricate drawings for the original concept art for all these characters. But uh, as that as that representation of her, so she's she's the artistic representation, who's you know done in in pen and ink. Uh, but, uh, is that, is but that yeah, Habano? Not... Is that the artist? Yes. And what, what about everyone else? So, um, I I actually had my my vision of what these characters look like tainted uh, because I played a different Final Fantasy game that they were all, that a number of them were in first as full fully rendered 3D models that were walking around. So I had my my Kefka and my Terra preset. Uh, so I, uh, I guess that so was. So you a, think of that later game as like what they look like, right? And I had also seen, I guess, uh, the there was a re-release of this that had full motion video capture with a 
3D animated some of the cutscenes. And I guess I had seen pictures or clips of that at some point before I played this game, so I had those matched up pretty close with what they looked like in another game, so. That's interesting. You still aren't thinking of them as anything that looks like a, an actual human, right? Like you're thinking of them as those CGI images. And they don't get more real than that. Like there's no version of her hair that is more like hair than that oddly plasticky 3D rendered, uh, bit of shellac, right? That is on the, the more advanced model that you're thinking of. Um, I mean, they're, they're stylized, but they're fairly real. I mean, they look like anime characters, basically. Is the yeah. Better. Well, no, but I mean, that's, that's sort of the same question, right? Like, do anime yeah. characters look like that, or do they look like people whose eyes, like, you know, are not the size of, uh, of dinner plates? And I, I always think that, I mean, to a certain degree, you, you don't translate it into a more verisimilar version of the, of the, the character. You think that what they look like is what they look like, um, rather than being a representation of what they look like, which is something truer to life. I don't know, Ben, how about you? I, I think I fall closer on that, the, the, the former, that is the, they look like what they look like on the screen. You know, it, Homer Simpson has four fingers, not five, even though his, his, you know, his animation isn't quite human. That, that's just what he looks like. And I, I guess I, when I'm playing a video game of any kind, I, I think I usually don't try and translate it into what they would look like in real life, but particularly for a game that's now 20 years old where the, the animation doesn't really get there. I, I think my thinking might be a little different for a more modern game yeah. with. And- and in the case of, uh, characters. In, in the case of like the particular thing I was asking, like does Kefka look like his map sprite, um, or does he look like the the combat still image? Hmm. I, it's I, definitely the combat for me. I, I sort of see it almost like a. Uh, um, Star Fox, where it's, you know, now you see my true form, where you kind of have <laughs> the, uh, the multiple forms, because, because magic kind of allows you to do that, where the, there's kind of an unveiling of what the, the true nature of the, particularly for an enemy, I feel like, uh, this is, that's a fairly common, common narrative trope, that there's a, yeah. a face presented to the world and then a, a true form that shows off the evilness. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense for uh, for Kefka in particular. But I have to say, like, at least for the characters that I'm controlling, I think of their real appearance as the map sprites. Um, and, well, and their combat sprites are the same, right? Um, because those are the ones that, that move and are animated, right? But when I go into the... Um, the the menu screen and see their character portraits, I feel like, oh, that's a very flattering caricature that they had drawn on the, on the Jersey shore. You know, that's not really what they look like. They look like the little super deformed um, dolls that I move around. (laughs) And because of that, when I see Kefka in combat, like moving, you know, how, how weird to have one of the things you're fighting move. I think, oh, he's real in a way that everything else I've been fighting is not even real. Like he's a he's a person because he looks like the rest of my people. He, he's he's animated, you know. He is invested with uh with with life, like uh, like my avatars are invested with life. I don't know. I'm not saying that I'm that I'm right, and and you guys are you know uh, who think that it's the 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 portrait, the still portrait are wrong, but I think it's, it's sort of interesting that you're presented with that choice. And I wonder if there's, there's any more that we can get to with that later on, you know, as, as we think about it more. 
while we're talking about Kefka, let me bring up a uh, throw out a comment uh, that we got on uh, on Twitter from at uh, Flound of Pesh, uh, who, who brings up the poisoning of Doma, and he asks, "Does unflinching evil make Kefka an interesting villain?" I think so, but arguably boring. Uh, what do you guys have to say about that that question? It does uh, it does take the game to a much darker place than. Uh, then I, I think a lot of players contemporarily, I mean, obviously, you know, video games in, in 2014 are, are all about pushing the envelope in ways that are often stupid and, and boring. But, uh, for me at least, as a 13 year old or 14 year old playing it at the time, not just the fact that he poisons the river and wipes out an entire fortified town in doing so, but the way we discover that, you know, sort of cyan's, you know, musicless, you know, terrified exploration of the castle where he, you know, pulls his, his wife and, and children's, you know, corpses out of their bed is, is pretty dark. It's pretty heartbreaking. So it, it personalizes the villainy in a way that wasn't always done in prior games where you had these world-conquering, you know, world-threatening villains who didn't really seem to do much other than sit in a castle at the farthest point from where you started playing the game and wait for you to show up. I think it's also but, important... Oh, go go ahead. I was just going to say, especially killing the child is, like, that is... That is, uh... That is gangster, right? That is... That is uh, I don't think there are many games today that would do that. Yeah. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, um, it, I think it's an important moment of characterization for Kafka, just sort of from a from a story standpoint, because what have you seen Kafka do to this point? I mean, you've seen him talk a little bit. Uh, he set the castle on fire because he wasn't getting what he wanted, but sort of poisoning an entire city is a level so far beyond anything that we've seen that it, especially when this came out and people didn't have this preconceived notion of Kafka in their heads already as this insane sort of unhinged clown who is willing to do whatever, no matter the cost, it really established that that's what it established for them. Is that this is who this is. Yeah. Like it, it, it's what makes him the, it's what makes him the, the significant villain. I think that it would be boring if he was the only villain in the piece. You know, th- that would, that would just be like, oh, okay, so he's really evil. All right, we get it. But the fact that it comes in the middle of this sort of move to humanize the empire, which like all of the scenarios do that to a certain degree, I think, or, or many of them, um, to then have him do this horrible thing is all the more chilling because just when you're getting to think like, oh, well, this is just a war between two factions and there are decent people on both sides, although still I'd like to think that I'm the good guys, then Kefka goes and pulls a stunt like this. Um, and and it's, you know, uh, it makes the stakes much, much higher than they were even before when you just thought it was an evil empire, a sort of stock evil empire. Yeah. Right. I mean, Kefka it's is sort of on his own side. Yeah, right. it's 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 important. It's part of the general contribution to making Kefka really unlikable. Uh, his anno- his annoying meaty laugh also being high on the list, and his just general ill spirited meanness to everyone who come who everyone who he comes into contact with. Like he literally has nothing good to say to anybody. 
like even as as General Leo is leaving, saying like, "All right, I've been called back to, you know, I've been called back to the Empire. Just try and keep things okay while I'm gone." Kepka's response is something like, "Idiot, get out of here!" Meh. It's like, God, <laughs> like tell, pretend tell to be nice for like five that. seconds. Tell me that you read all of Kepka's dialogue like that out loud to yourself as you're playing. Yes, especially when I'm playing on the bus or the the subway to work, I, I'll just murmur that to myself and, and let people back away from me slowly. Well, you got to get a seat somehow, right? Son of a <laughs> submariner, I'd, I'd get away from you pretty fast. Here, I'll turn this into a flowing river of poison. <laughs> uh, yeah, Kepka's definitely got one of the two best game laughs. I think. Oh yeah. Anyway, um, yes, if, if Kefka is the main villain, I think we talked about it a little earlier, but Terra is, uh, is, d- even though she's not the hero, right? Because there is no hero. She features on all of the game's box art. She's the one that they picked to represent the franchise in their sort of collaboration games whenever they do a crossover. Um, do, do you think that Terra, based on, I guess, the scenario that she goes through, do you think that she is the lead? Do we think we have enough of a sense of her at this point? Her theme is the main theme, uh, very similar. I, I think her character arc, her discovery of her, spoiler alert, her esper nature, her ability to reconcile that, and sort of the overarching question of what do you do with your life when you've been given tremendous power that you want nothing to do with, and... As we'll discover if we run into her again in the world of ruin, the answer is, well, you can choose your own path. You can do tremendous good on a very small scale, and that, that can be a meaningful life. Uh, I think that arc is the biggest, is the biggest and most original arc that any character goes through. And I think insofar as that's the case, she's, you can make a case for her being the hero. Uh, that said, it is entirely possible to reach the end of the game and not have her there. So maybe this is just weird postmodernist meta on their part. Who knows? I would say that she's the hero of the narrative, but they sort of systematically take steps, take steps, take steps <laughs> to prevent her from being the hero of the game. Um, starting with, like I said, when you rejoin Locke to her near the beginning, Locke stays the the map character rather than Terra. And then she's going to go MIA for a while. Everyone needs to track her down and, and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, although I've heard that the morph power is actually very, very useful if you use it right, um, I think that I sort of never used it at all. And it, it doesn't lend itself to being used uh, right away, at least. Um, where was I going with this? I feel like the one who always seemed like the main character to me actually um, was kind of Locke. And it ends up being something sort of like uh, The Three Musketeers, where the book is about D'Artagnan, but the story is kind of about uh, the Queen of France. And D'Artagnan <laughs> is just sort of like knocking around in her world, right? Yeah. Uh, she has very little screen time, but it's her kind of grand tragedy that is playing out. And you get this, I mean, this is a game that I did not play, but I had a roommate who played it, which means that I saw a lot of it in um, one of the recent Final Fantasies. Is it 10, the one that's all on the water with the giant whale? Um, I think so, yeah. Yeah, I think so. The, 
the love interest girl character in that it's her story but the main character is uh the the sort of skater punk titus guy that uh that you start out the game play <laughs> or the the anal- the analogy that might work and I, I had to look up some terms uh to to get it straight is uh in the brothers karamazov there's there's the sense, uh, there's the character Ilyusha, who's this, you know, preternaturally spiritual and, and almost holy, uh, young kid who gets very sick, uh, midway through the novel and whose death and funeral sort of cap off the, the epilogue. And, uh, Alyosha Karamazov gives this sort of speech, uh, at the funeral that, that really brings the town together and, uh, you know, it sort of provides the the moral the moral of the story uh, in the course of that. I think Tara may fill a similar role in that all the characters are sort of drawn into the story because of her and her her ability to change and her ability to undergo a narrative arc is important. But she's not strictly speaking the protagonist. Like the protagonists of the Karama- of the brothers Karamazov are the brothers Karamazov. And the protagonists of Final Fantasy VI are everyone whose lives Terra passes through. The, what, the example that jumps to my mind would be Shawshank Redemption, where the protagonist, certainly the first time you're watching through, is Tim Robbins' character, because he's kind of the what the story centers around. But yeah. he's not the one that is redeemed in the story. The, the Shawshank Redemption is Red, the character who actually goes through a character arc throughout the movie, whereas Andy stays pretty much the same throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's kind of how, what, what I'm thinking of when, when you're talking about that sort of narr- dis- distance between the protagonist and the narrative center. So I guess Terrence and MacGuffin, right? <laughs> well, I will say, at least so far, though, when you've had big plot scenes where it's like, all right, now you're going to walk around a safe area and initiate conversations with people, um, and then maybe you'll get to pick a choice from a menu, those have been mostly Terras so far. You know, it's it's the the combaty stuff and the the cave exploration stuff. She is de-emphasized, but when it's time to have a conversation. Um, she is is trotted back out, right? So it might be a, a slightly more nuanced version of the thing that we're talking about here. But yeah, when you look at the the three scenarios, though, which that is a a fighting and cave exploration thing. So Locke gets to go do his uh, his his solid snake impression, right? And the Saban scenario is enormous and involves a lot of combat, um, and has a little science scenario inserted into the middle of it, and so on. But Terra's is is very anticlimactic, isn't it? It's very short, yeah. Like it's literally just get off the river and then go go through a stage that you've already traversed uh, just backwards. Yeah, and if you if you do that one last, then it transitions, I think, the most naturally into the everyone gets together in Narsh. So at that point, that just sort of becomes her continuing scenario for a little bit. But if you don't do it last, then it, it feels like a real uh, kind of appendix of a of a of a split plot scenario, like appendix in the sense of uh, vestigial organ, not in the sense of the thing where all of the the things that we cited in the book are listed. <laughs> I think it's it's interesting you called out that maybe sort of Locke is the protagonist uh, that Locke has the the most speech throughout the entire game. He is his dialogue and sort of lines comprise almost 10% of this entire script. Um 
Terra is fifth behind Locke, Edgar, Sabin, and Kefka. So the, I guess there's some there's some uh, analysis, the data points to support perhaps what you're saying that at this point maybe Terra is doing a lot of the talking, but overall this is the Locke show. Of course, in that sense, that actually argues, at least that you one could argue that that makes Terra the protagonist of the game because video game protagonists are notoriously silent creatures. In, <laughs> in most video games, the NPCs do all the talking and the player does almost no talking uh, just because it, it does kind of take you out of the narrative when the character that you are purportedly controlling is saying things that maybe you would never say. So let me uh, let me hit one one thing from the uh, the forums that we have about Terra. Bastion of Light uh, brings up that uh, this kind of goes full circle to what we're talking about with the the Ludo narrative. That if you refuse the offer to help the Returner three times, you get a different relic, you get a different artifact, you get a different piece of equipment than you would if you say yes the first time. I think you get a a glove if you say no three times and otherwise you would just you would get a uh, a gauntlet and so this is interesting it, it means that you do have a choice like that choice is not completely meaningless to say no to the returners but uh the choice is not the one you think you're making you're making a choice between two different pieces of equipment not actually where the narrative is going to go and that yeah. choice i guess it never tells you that like i didn't know that until you just told me so yeah, that like, is not signposted at all. No, no, that's that's what I mean. Is you, you don't know you're making a choice, and you, the, the choice you think you're making is between helping the returners and not helping the returners. But that's not really the choice you're making. <laughs> so, do you think the game is trying to lull us into a a weird state of reflexive, I guess, narrative judgment by sometimes presenting us with false choices and sometimes presenting us with real choices? Because you know, I mean, the, the gameplay is slightly different. I mean, people have different preferences as to whether the gauntlet or the, the Genji glove, which is the Americanized translation, uh, are better relics given your, your character's status at the, at the time. Uh, but of course, you don't know which one you're going to get beforehand. But, uh, you know, the, the, versus the, you know, stealing is wrong choice that we talked about at the top of the hour, where, you know, you don't really have a choice there, but you do have a bit of one here. But in a, in an ignorant playthrough of the game, knowing nothing else, how would you, how would you be able to distinguish between those choices, or would you be able to? It's interesting. I mean, one one possible answer is that this rewards the kind of person who would immediately save, you know, upon reaching the returner's hideout, and then seeing that you have two options with uh with Bannon, uh like, do one and play through that and see what happens and then reload the save and see, like, what happens if I do this, you know? And then they get to find out, oh, I guess I actually get two different artifacts. Well, now let me see which one I want and then I'll make this save file the game that I'm actually going to play. So it, it, it could be just, like, to to reward the person who approaches it with a real uh, OCD, gotta, gotta hit every every possible narrative node um, completionist attitude. I sort of hope it's not that, because I, I hate that way of playing the game. <laughs> I, I think it might just be rewarding the kid who had the subscription and the Nintendo Power, but I, I could be wrong about that. But then, again, there's um, someone in the forum was saying that, like, it might be 
if you buy that the Genji glove is better, which to me it's, I mean, I think that it's much, much better, but I don't know, I'm, I'm not uh, into the numbers behind this, then it might be rewarding the more realistic role play of Terra. Because you don't have to, to flat out tell the returners to, to get stuffed. You know, you just have to turn them down the first time. When they say, like, will you be our leader and our only hope? If you're like, I don't really feel comfortable with this. And then they're like, well, give it some more thought. And then you go and tr- talk to people and you get the Genji glove, right? Um, which maybe that's a more realistic thing for Terra to be doing. And if so, it might be that the game is rewarding role-playing. The way that a, that a DM at the table might be like a thousand experience points for trying to seduce the vampire. You know, because that's what your character would totally do. Well, uh, well, thanks guys. I think this has been uh, a good discussion. I really uh, enjoyed hitting uh, hitting all these points. Uh, any any kind of last round observations about these three scenarios? It's uh, awesome when Sabin suplexes the train. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, this is also this is also where we first get our brief glimpse of Shadow, who seemed much cooler to me at age thirteen than he does now, when he's just sort of like this asshole ninja who shows up is me is kind of snippy to you helps you and then will wander off with all the best weapons that you equipped him with uh a little later hello hey it's Jaina. <laughs> what's up guys just in time to uh to, to wrap but i think you, there was a point that you, you you felt was extremely important to make Oh, yes, I, I just wanted to say that it's really important that we all know that Interceptor is the best. Although, as I said in the forum, uh, the Sabin suplexing uh, train is also up there uh, in terms of the best. This is me overthinking, um, so I'm signing off. Thanks, Jenna. <laughs> <laughs> all right. With- my- oh. oh, no, go ahead, Justin. I was gonna say my my last thought is that I guess a little before the scenario split I didn't we didn't get get to it last week but it's it's still relevant here because you can access the first first using magic cutscene apparently whenever is that the game really makes magic feel awesome the first time you use it uh, not because all the characters are like whoa what is that but because especially the first time you use it it does like ten times more damage than anything else. And Terra's the only one that can use it. And it, that's how the game communicates. Oh, magic is a big deal. It's like when they say that, that nobody can use magic, y- you should feel the same way they do using magic because magic is a thousand times more powerful than anything. And it's something like I often see, you know, people say, well, warriors are good against mages because mages are squishy and rogues are good against warriors because they can take apart the armor or whatever. But I, I've always thought, you know, a, a person who can use magic isn't going to care how much armor you're wearing because they're going to set you on fire. And this game makes you really feel that that is the truth, especially <laughs> once everybody can learn magic. And then you've got warrior mages or rogue mages. That it, it, it really makes sense the way that they've uh, positioned magic within the world. Let me say also, though, that um, having that sense of what magic can do makes the poisoning sequence at Doma all the more chilling because you know that Kefka is out to get his hands on some magic. Yeah. Well, thanks, guys. I think we'll uh, we'll leave the rest of this for the forums. Uh, Shane has already got a great post for us, so uh, please, everybody listening, uh, go ahead and jump in, and we'll be doing that uh, throughout the book club. 
Uh, but other than that, you can find that at uh, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably I'm so glad I got in for that. That laugh is so good that they actually reused it in Chrono Trigger. They they just ripped the voice clip directly to a new character. It is a work of art. I, I so, wrote in my notes when it happened. I was like, this is technology at its height. What was it, 1994 technology or whatever it was? Or, yeah, um, that was when laugh technology peaked. 